Eric Johnson. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. And you have done some ultra marathoning, some long distance running. You were sponsored by Cliff Bar at a period of time. Tell me a little bit about your passion in life. Yeah, so my passion in life is obviously running. You know, I kind of discovered that in high school um, and really pushing myself physically um, to the limits, really testing that to see that's kind of why I kept going is I just, you know, my passion is seeing where my limits are um, in different aspects, you know, professionally, you know, with athletics um, and just see, you know, where, where, where it takes me, this guy's the limit. So, but yeah, passionate about running, um, quickly found out in high school that football wasn't my thing. And, um, my dad at the time was getting into marathons. Uh, he was, um, in the army reserves. So he always tried to stay, you know, fit and active. And, um, at the time he was running a marathon, he had the goal to run one marathon a month. And so, um, this is when I was about freshman in high school. And what time is that? What time frame is this about? Um, so this was in high school, um, about 1997. This is before so. it was really popular, the ultra marathon running and everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had no clue about it at that point. Um, but you know, my two older brothers were really good football players, tall, and they were built for football. And, um, I was getting tall, but you know, as a freshman, I was pretty lanky, uh, <laughs> just kind of bones. And, but you know, thinking, Hey, I'm going to fill out like my brothers. I might as well start playing some football. And so I tried out uh, football freshman year, was on the team. And since I was tall, the coach put me as defensive end just to kind of stand and, you know, distract the quarterback as best oh, as yeah. I could. But my problem was I was so tall and linky that there was no meat to me. And those offensive line would just smack me, you know, just push me over. Move you around. Yeah, they would just move me around like a little rag doll. <laughs> And so, well, if you get to move around, I mean, hey, why not go running then? You can r- move around even quicker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, my dad challenged me to run a 5K that year. It was the Cordova Christmas Classic in uh, Rancho Cordova, I believe. And my first race ever, um, he signed me up. And I was like, sure, I'll go try it. Because um, I wanted to stay in shape for football the next season. Because in my mind, I was like, okay, that season kind of stunk, but we'll give it a shot again. And I went and ran the race, and I ended up winning my age, age group by a lot. And I remember my dad afterwards, you know, I got my little first place award, and my dad was like, maybe you should consider running instead of football. And <laughs> <laughs> I try not to take offense to it because um, in my mind I, I had made up, I'm going to be a good football player like my older brothers, you know, kind of followed their footsteps. But then, you know, I just realized, well, maybe my dad's on to something. And maybe I should listen to that. <laughs> so we, we call that failing forward. Yes. Right. I, I, I've always That's liked a great term. that definition because it's not that you're bad at one thing. You just figured out you wanted to do something else. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, my wife would be like, Alan's a serial hobbyist. And I go, well, that's because I found out I didn't want to do one thing and I, I fell in love with something else. Exactly. Right? Uh, at least for now. Um, yeah. So you, you win this 5K. Right, and 5K for folks who don't me- maybe know the difference, that's like, what, two and a half, three miles? Uh, 3.1. Yeah, right in there. And so this starts off your journey. So it, tell me about what do you start doing after that. So instead of um, signing up for, you know, football conditioning and whatnot that spring, um, my freshman year at Delaro High School um, here in Loomis, I, um, oh, I actually have a, 
There's a picture of my freshman year. Look how oh. scrawny 71 I look. 71 is a defensive end. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it makes sense that they'd put you there because defensive ends are basically like 6'4", so what you got to be like starting, right? So that makes sense because I'm not sure how, how much people can tell, but how tall are you? Because you're, you're pretty I, tall. 6'5". Yeah, you're if I stand straight. Now I'm getting a little older. I hunch a little more, but... So that is uh, kind of the nuance of being like six two, six three. I feel like you shrink. Yeah, you compress. My father in law and uh-huh. my grandfather in law um, is six nine and six seven, and I feel like I, when you're that tall, instead of shrinking, you start to hunch a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Right, so I understand <laughs> the gist of that. So that's that's what I'm going through now. <laughs> and so you start running, right? So that's your freshman year of playing football. Mm-hmm. You start running. Now you're doing track or cross country. So I did track that um, spring um, in, I guess that'd be 98 now over at Delaro. So freshman year started out track, um, doing the mile and two mile. And very quickly, the head coach of the track program realized, hey, this guy can run. And so I did like the first meet or two kind of frost soft category. Um, and I won it, you know, pretty easy. And they recognized I could be scoring points for them on the varsity level. So then um, after that first couple meets, they put me right on the varsity team. And then I just started running from there and, <laughs> and now scoring points. You got to tell your brothers, I have a Letterman jacket as a freshman. Yeah, Eat that football player. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I got, um, you know, four varsity letters for track. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure there was probably some other accolades that went in there too as well. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I got varsity letters, seven of them you know, doing track and then cross country. Um, I was team captain of track and cross country for, you know, a few years. Um, We went to the state meet um, senior year for cross country. Um, So that was exciting. And then um, we didn't, we didn't win state or anything, but we won section and uh, made it to state. Which is a very big deal around here where we're at in Northern California. Yeah, very competitive. Um, It's pretty much like the state championship for about, 45 other states. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Just so we're on the same page. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big accomplishment. Um, I made all all league, um, I think, a few few years. Um, so it was great. And there, there's my scrawny uh, freshman. All right. Let's take a look at this. Freshman picture for track. Yeah. Man. Flexing those guns. You got some strides. Look at. <laughs> <laughs> you can move. Yeah. There's a that's there's a, a blast from the past. There's a high school picture, doing running. some cross country. Yep. Wow. I mean, this guy looking next to you, he doesn't even have a chance. There's a there's some more. You've got like six inches on him just from your waist. Oh and yeah. So striding out like you're just you're moving. Oh yeah. And these guys are behind. They're uh they're struggling. Oh yeah. So you do all this, mm-hmm. right? You start tapping into track, cross country, everything else. How does that get you either into college or into the ultra marathon running or to the point where eventually, you know, for a period of time you were sponsored by Cliff Bar? Like kind of walk me through that transition and into that process. Maybe I'll start with uh, my internal drive, motivation. Yeah. I've always been interested to push myself, like I was saying, you know, a little earlier and just seeing where my limits are. And I've always been a believer that you're the only person that can hold yourself back. I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, You know, there's different life circumstances that can definitely get in the way, cause more obstacles and whatnot. 
but it's really that internal motivation, that drive. I've always been interested in, you know, rock climbing, outdoor type stuff. And um, a couple of my friends um, actually had a, I think it was an uncle or a cousin that was getting into these high-tech adventure races. And I'd hear about it, uh, you know, they'd go around the country or sorry, around the world and do these adventure races. And um, it was just, I thought it was like the coolest thing just to hear about the endurance of, you know, what he was doing to push himself to that. And um, I remember, you know, I love my friends, um, but I remember them, you know, saying like, oh, I, I want to try to do that someday. I wonder if I could push myself that hard and go that far. And and he, that guy was sponsored. I was like, oh, I wonder if I get some sponsors someday. That'd be cool to like, you know, make it. And um, my friends were like, no, that's never going to happen. You know, that's, you're not going to get to that point. Um, but that kind of gave me a little fire inside me. Like, okay, I'll, let's see, you know, I'll prove you guys wrong. Let's see what I'm made of. (laughs) Yeah. And I've actually never told them that. Um, but maybe they'll, maybe they'll find out with this. Yeah. You heard it first on the (laughs) Wack Tech podcast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you know, that kind of lit a little bit of internal fire under me. Like, you know, and that's when I started realizing my competitiveness, you know, I've always, I wanted to you know, do the best I could out there. And, but it's always been kind of, um, I wasn't always motivated by, I got to get first, you know, sometimes I would, and sometimes I wouldn't, but it was really about my, you know, competing against myself, um, to see if I can push myself. Cause we all have that moment where we work, you know, we, we want to stay in the comfort zone, but there's that spot you get to where you're like, okay, I'm going to push outside this comfort zone. And, um, for me, that's, you know, internally, it's always, can I push myself past that comfort zone? Just push myself a little further. Um, let's see what happens, you know, see how, how, see what's in me. And so that kind of lit a little bit of fire inside of me to see, you know, okay, I'm doing well with running and whatnot and doing the, um, you know, mile, two mile on track and in high school doing, you know, the 5k for cross country but I wonder if I could push myself past that. I felt like I, I had it in me to do it, but I just never had the um, opportunity to go too far, you know, while I was in high school. And, um, you know, getting to, I'm, I'm getting to the, how I got into ultra running. Um, but, um, you know, some of my friends from the, the cross country and track team, um, I graduated with uh, one of my friends, um, Scott Kirkish, that, um, it was in my same class and uh, we really wanted to do something cool and crazy for our senior, like a senior trip. You know, we had friends going to different places, like maybe to the beach, beach area, whatnot. And just being running geeks, we're like, man, what's something cool we could do that's like running related. And what we decided was um, to run across the state of Nevada to see if we could do that. And this is when we're, I was 17 still when, you know, graduated high school and he was 18. And so we started thinking, we just kind of threw it out there first, like, okay, that'd be a crazy idea. But then we started talking about it more like, maybe we should try to do something like that. (laughs) No shit. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was like, in my mind, I'm like, well, that'd give us a challenge. That'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. I wonder what that'd be like, like, would we die? You know, would we, (laughs) would we like go into like heart failure? You know, would our bodies just like fall apart? Like, what would that be like? And 
you know, up to that point, there hadn't really been, at least in my realm, in my world, I had no idea about ultra running at that point. Yeah. Uh, I know that there were some people around doing it, but it hadn't really been like a popular thing yet. But it was something we wanted to challenge ourselves. And um, so we thought, like, man, let's do this. And then we also thought maybe we could pair it with a great cause. And so um, we had a classmate that, that died, um, John Garcia, that year from meningitis over at Delora High School. And, um, you know, we, we knew John um, a little bit. Um, he was a baseball player in the sports. And tragically, he got meningitis and passed away within a couple of days. And it was something that wasn't really known about. Um, so we, we decided maybe we could do a cool, you know, senior trip where we can push ourselves, but also raise some money and awareness, um, about meningitis. Um, and so, so we just decided to do it and, uh, we recruited two other friends, um, to come with us, um, that were, uh, juniors going into seniors, John Busher and, and Tyler Daly. And, um, we, you know, we, we, we pitched it to them and they're like, heck yeah. So Let's was this it. a you guys running in a group of four, or was this kind of like a Ragnar race where you guys ran intervals? So what we did is um, we did, I guess we kind of did Ragnar style a little bit. So what we do is we just paired up. So there's four of us, and all we had was um, the four of us in a truck. Um, I think John Bush's parents uh, let a bunch of teenagers, four teenagers, borrow their truck, <laughs> their nice truck, to drive across Nevada <laughs> and run. Um, and we had a bike. So what we did is we, we, we paired up. And so uh, we would start with, uh, you know, two of us running, um, drop two of us off, and then two, the other two would drive up 10 miles ahead on the highway. And this is all across Highway 50. So we started at South Lake Tahoe at the state line. And um, two of us started uh, running. And uh, so one would run and one would be on a bike. And so what we do is uh, run a mile, switch, and then um, bike, you know, and then run another mile, switch, and kind of just keep switching until we got to the other two that were 10 miles ahead. And then they'd hop out. They'd start running and biking, kind of switching off, and the two that just finished would hop in the truck and drive ahead 10 more miles. And so we just did this the whole way all the way across Nevada. And how long did this take you guys? It took us five days. It took you five days. Yeah. You got now do you have a newspaper article or a photo or something like this? Um, I do have some. Let's see. So there's a picture of me running. Holy crap. There's you running right down highway fifty in the middle of the desert. Oh yeah. It was feet, feet racing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what we got time some of the sponsors. Year was this? That was in the middle of July. Savage. Yeah. Talk about pushing yourself mentally. Oh, running yeah. through the desert in July on the hot asphalt and pavement in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. We were baking in the sun. For five days. For five yeah. days. <laughs> For Savage. five days. And the first day, I think we covered about 85 miles or so. And then um, that night, I think we got to, we made it to Sand Mountain, for anybody that knows yep. where that is all, along the route. There was a huge windstorm that night. And we had just finished running, you know, out there in the sun the whole day, just fried to a crisp didn't realize how burnt I got but that night with the windstorm I remember just sleeping laying in my tent I had a little single man tent and I just felt like I was getting sandblasted by sand just being blown up in the vents and it was just raining all over me you know my friends are in their tents there's rain all over them and it just I just remember hurting because I had like you know just totally fried skin plus just sand just pelting me 
when I'm laying in there. And so what I actually did is I ended up dragging my tent in the middle of the night into an outhouse over there. And I, I just put my tent right in the outhouse and I slept good after that. <laughs> Wait, you went in a bath? Oh, oh yeah. Like a, like a, like a bathroom yeah, area. Like a like vault a toilet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I figured out that that was blocking the wind and the sand. And that was the only way that I was going to get some sleep. Um, I didn't really sleep very good anyways, uh, sleeping in a vault toilet. But, you know, it got me protected a little bit. I mean, if, if uh, you know, carbon dioxide or, you know, any of the gases that it emits helps you out, I'm sure we would have found out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe some of those gases are what helped to, you know, help yeah. keep us going the other four days. I'm not going to sign up for that volunteer study. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you did. Yeah. And there's a there's my first 100 mile mark. Um, so this is this you running 100 miles or are you so that running was my, 50 biking 50? So that was my collective running 100 mile because the whole distance was about 400. If I remember, about 450 miles all the way across. So each of us had um, over 100 miles within that five days that we had run. Wow. Yeah, and so that I took that picture uh, when I hit my 100 mile mark. You look beat. So, so even <laughs> yeah. when you divvy up all the miles ran, each person did 100 miles separately, pretty yeah. much, right? Yep. Yeah, some of us did. Um, I, I'd have to find the exact breakdown, but we all hit at least 100 miles. Um, there were moments where, uh, you know, one of us wasn't feeling great, so we might have sat out on, you know, doing that little relay. Um, I think I might have hit maybe 115, 120 total. So it, it was, uh, we all hit at least 100 um, but we all varied just a little bit depending on, you know, if you had to pick up slack for someone that wasn't feeling good at the moment or whatever, you just kind of jump in and run some extra miles. And this is an 18-year-old, 17-year-old, and like two 16-year-olds, correct? Yeah, approximately. 17-year-olds, about right in there. Yep, yep. That's so yeah, what, 17, 18. What were the sponsors you guys grabbed for that? So the sponsors for that was Fleet Feet. Um, you know, they gave us some, I think they gave us some jerseys for that, um, some running shoes. They sponsor the shoes. Um, they also, um, can't remember everything else they gave us, but then we also had Noah's Bagels that sponsored us. And what they did is um, at night, they threw out those big trash bags full of bagels that weren't used for the day. So their sponsorship was, they gave us a huge trash bag full of bagels. And we just had that sitting in the bed of the truck. <laughs> if we got hungry, we would just open up that plastic bag, that trash bag and just grab a bagel out. <laughs> and start eating it. <laughs> Savage. So, oh yeah, that's Sh how we did it. Shout out Noah's bagels. Yeah, shout yeah, out right. Noah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, Noah's bagels. And then there was also um, a local entrepreneur. I can't remember the name of the drink. It was an energy drink. He was up in Auburn. It might have been called Dragon's Blood or something. I don't know if it exists anymore. But um, he he noticed what we were doing. You know, we were starting to get noticed in like the newspaper. We did a little bit of planning on it, like the Placer Herald did an, an article on us saying, you know, look at these guys, this is what they're going to go do. And um, so we had a few businesses reaching out to us saying, hey, how can we help? So some people like give us some product, um, gave us some money, and we just basically bought a bunch of junk food and just threw it in the back of the truck uh, with a few extra pairs of clothes, um, a tent and a sleeping bag. And um, at that time, we just had uh, mixed... Uh, Gatorade powder <laughs> and so so we would just and I think we had like a five gallon jug you know of like one of those old coolers sitting on the top so you just kind of like open up yeah but we would just um, just dump Gatorade mix in there mix it up 
and that's what we survived on. Savage. You yeah. guys are OGs. <laughs> because <laughs> the the long distance and ultra people that I know, they're like salt pills and certain mm-hmm. types of uh, diets and yeah, they got all these little tricks that they're doing. I mean, because I think it's it's so well known now, mm-hmm. you know, the science behind nutrition. But back in 98, you know, mm, debatable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was this was 2001, um, the summer we graduated. But yeah, at that time, it, that research just didn't exist. Or at least, you know, we were too young to even know, like, what we were doing. So yeah. we were just relying on our experience from running track and cross country. So let's tap into your minds a little bit here. Yeah. Okay. So so you get beat down uh, sort of at your own will because you want to be this football player that your brothers were. <laughs> then you have this realization that I'm I'm pretty good at, you know, running. Um, I should go do that. To then sort of finding your passion with some long distance running because you like to train the dials in your mind and getting past and doing things that sort of push the envelope of what you feel is capable. Walk me through how you approach your mindset going and doing, not something like like this, but mm-hmm. the ultra types of races that you've done. Walk me through that mindset. How do you start to check into that? Because I feel, um, you know, Goggins, Jocko, all these people that are out there talking about it now, they're, they're sort of talking about something similar, mm-hmm. but you were doing this pre-social media. Right. So I want to hear I want to hear your experience <laughs> with that. Yeah, so to get myself in the mindset um you know, it's really just being self-aware and just self-reflective, just learning how to tap into that um inner motivation and like what really drives drives me. Um a lot of it's um you know, over the years kind of learned the term, you know, putting the hay in the barn of um all your preparation and training it's um from when uh when you're training for all this ultra um some of the guys that i would train with um i learned the you know the saying the phrase of you know all your training is um 10 percent mental and 90 percent physical so you're putting in all the hard work just beating yourself down um you know really just putting in that work um and this is all, um, you know, this is all just the training part. Um, and then, you know, putting in the hard work and then when race day comes, it shifts to 90% mental, 10% physical. And it's really having that confidence boost that you've put yourself there before. Um, and being able to just have that confidence that you've worked, put in the work, you've gone through it and it's time to execute. Um, and so it's, um, and mentally it's getting yourself in the right frame of mind that, you know, what's ahead of you, um, and what's necessary to get there and just kind of, I guess at a, at a way acknowledging you're going to be in severe pain and just being comfortable with it, just realizing I'm going to be in pain, but that's okay. Um, it's temporary and I'm going to push through it and, um, just knowing that there's going to be obstacles. I've never had a race that's gone perfect and it's just getting yourself used to the fact of it's not going to be ever be perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect race. 
Eric, not to cut you off, but it yeah. sort of sounds like you're saying like you're like up for a challenge. You know, you're mm-hmm. just like, I know something's going to go wrong, but I'm like ready for that yeah. to a certain degree. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And um, there's something exciting about that to know that it's not going to go right. And it's it's kind of exciting to think about something bad's going to happen. <laughs> and also to conquer it. Yeah, exactly. So when you go into that dark place in your mind, when you're in the middle of the race and you're just like, fuck, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> what do you tap into? Um, I tap into a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things. Um, I guess, you know, my family is one of them is, um, making people proud of me, I guess. And knowing that people are looking up to me, um, and not disappointing them, I guess that's, that's a motivation for me. Um, you know, in high school it was, you know, I guess making my parents proud, um, you know, making me proud of myself of, um, working through that, um, and not giving up, um, you know, my siblings making, making them proud of me, um, to let them see, you know, that I can fight for it and, you know, push my way through. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, it's, uh, you know, my wife now, she's been a huge supporter of me, you know, with all this crazy stuff and I couldn't do it without her and her support. Um, she thinks I'm nuts and crazy. Um, (laughs) she wouldn't do this. Um, and, um, same with our son, you know, once our son was born, it's, um, that's kind of the motivation for me is when I get to those tough moments, it's, um, I'm doing it for them uh, to kind of train and hone myself to the point where I can handle the fiery darts of whatever that's coming at me. Um, you know, I can get burned up and just stomped on and squished, but I can deal with it, but I can deal with it. I can work through it and I know that I'll get over it. Um, that's one of the things too, that I've learned is with all this ultra running is, um, you know, and then that first, you know, running across Nevada is I can do hard things. Um, might not be pretty and they can get really ugly and bad, (laughs) but I can do it, but I can do it. And, um, you know, after every, um, downturn, there's going to be an upturn. It's, it comes back. I had my sort of first experience conquering something that I had not prepared for mentally and being in a situation where I was, um, forced to deal with it. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was very eye-opening how I felt afterwards. And uh, I was so pumped to go fishing with a buddy of ours. We had him on the podcast. He's a taxidermist. And we were going out in, in the bay outside of the San, outside of San Francisco fishing for some salmon. And it was supposed to be a beautiful day. It was like gonna, supposed to be 104-ish in the valley. So we're thinking like, okay, it's going to be hot. It's going to be nice and calm. No, we get there and it's like, a ridiculous amount of wind. I don't know how many knots exactly, but there's a ton of chop, like eight to 10 foot swells, right? With, of wind chop. And so when you're trawling on this boat and we left at, you know, we were on the water at like seven in the morning and we didn't get back till four at about wow. eight, long day. I'm just blowing chunks <laughs> and we're on a boat and I'm not going to make the boat. I don't even think a boat would even come in. Right. Cause I'm, I'm like, on a schedule 
every 15 minutes feel fine, 15 minutes feel nauseous, 15 minutes throw up. It's just like rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. So I ended up throwing up a ridiculous amount of times. <laughs> and my buddy's just looking at me. I didn't complain once, but I remember like as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, shit. I am here on this boat with these people. It's not coming in for me. It's not going back to shore. We're going to be out here fishing in the worst possible conditions that we can reasonably fish in. And um, I have to figure out a way to get through it. And that's when I just tapped into like what we do at CrossFit and everything else where it's like, okay, just a little, just a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. And that mindset of like, okay, I got to come up with a process. And literally it was like a saltine cracker, two sips of a Gatorade, two sips of some carbonated water, just so I had something to throw up and get rid of. But I remember I came home with two fish at the end of that trip. Awesome. And my wife was like, how'd it go today? And she's like, you look beat up. I was like, it's great. I got two fish. <laughs> so like I did this thing where it really tested my mental capacity, um, beat me up physically like pretty bad, uh, made me incredibly uncomfortable. But I came home with two large salmon, right, to stock the fridge with. Mm-hmm. And so that day, I just remember like it was like a sense of accomplishment. And I remember tapping into that because uh, – I, I didn't do any distance running, say, like what you would consider distance running. But for me, an ex-football player, you know, three, four, five miles is a, is a lot of distance. Oh, sure. And so, you know, I was tapping into that mindset doing those. And eventually I was getting down to like seven-ish minute miles on those. Like seven, seven at the fastest, about 7.30 on average. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while I, was, while I was racing go-karts because I needed to lose some weight. So that whole mindset of like tapping in and going to that dark place in your mind, like for me, it was that fishing trip and being able to unlock that and go, okay, like I can, I can get there and do that. And now for you, I can only imagine what that dark place is. Cause I imagine it came from that cross Nevada trip at some point. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, as you were uh, mentioning, you know, you're blowing chunks and I've, I've had a lot of chunky stories myself <laughs> <laughs> over the years <laughs> from doing some of this racing. Um, you know, th- that brought to mind one of the things, um, and in preparation for this, I, I texted my wife, I was like, it's like, Hey, what are some of the, what, what are, what are a few memorable moments from my running, you know, history so far that kind of stand out to you? And one of them for her, uh, was one of the hundred mile races I did the Tahoe rim trail 100. Uh, mile race in uh, 2010. Um, I um, got food poisoning, um, you know, during the race at one of the early aid stations, I think about mile eight or so. No shit. Um, you start early in the morning, about five o'clock before the sun's like really coming up just to maximize the amount of daylight you have to run the race. But I remember it wasn't quite bright outside yet, you know, still kind of dark dusk. Um, couldn't really see, you could see, but not like full colors and whatnot. But I remember coming through on the aid stations and one of my favorite things to eat is uh, some kind of melon just because it's, you know, um, easy to eat, um, has hydration, has some nutrition, uh, usually tastes good. Um, And I say that because I grabbed a handful of cantaloupe from this aid station and it was way out in the middle of nowhere up in the mountains, you know, high up above Tahoe. And um, I just remember taking a few bites of it and um, I had already swallowed a few bites before it registered in my mind of that this tastes gross. <laughs> and once I realized, I kind of looked at it and it wasn't super bright outside. I was like, that 
that kind of looks like a different color um, than you know the nice yellow or orange that cantaloupe usually is. And so I chucked the rest of the pieces that were left in my hand, and I just kind of went on. But then after you know mile 20, 25, you know it starts getting a little later in the morning. Uh, you know we were climbing up this one climb that was like a three mile climb up the face of a, a what's normally a ski lift in the winter time, but they had us going up this thing. And there's no trees because it's normally like a ski run, but we were just baking in the sun, just climbing up this thing and there's gravel. So every step you take, you're like sliding halfway back, but it just really worked. I mean, by the time I got to that, my stomach felt bad and to the point where it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Just like a sharp, like, like dagger pain, but, um, didn't figure out what it was. And, you know, later down, maybe like 35 miles or so. Um, coming to another A station, I see some other guys sitting in some chairs and they're just kind of sitting there like, like, uh, you know, just not looking good. And I'm like, I, I had a seat too, cause I wasn't feeling good. Just kind of talking to them. They're like, oh, I don't feel good. My stomach hurts. And we just got to talking and we're like, you're like, you know, that cantaloupe tasted kind of weird. And they had eaten some too. And I was like, oh, dang it. Maybe I got some food poisoning. And then at that point I was like wishing, I was like, man, let me throw up. Like, I want to throw up to get this out of my system. But I just couldn't throw up and I just couldn't bring myself to, in, you know, inducing it myself. <laughs> but, but once I got to the 50 mile mark, um, I was feeling bad. Um, and that race, you do two 50 mile loops. And the second 50 mile loop, you're allowed to have a pacer with you for safety. And um, I had one of my running buddies named Mark Lance um, that's a big ultra runner in the area. Um, that guy's you know, tough as nails. He's a little older, like a veteran, like ultra runner that like nothing phases him. You could cut his foot off. But I remember coming up to the 50 mile mark and thankfully right before I got to the 50 mile mark, I was finally able to, to throw up and it felt good for a few minutes, but then I started feeling bad again. And I remember I wanted to drop the race. Like I came in and this is where I had to like, you know, inner channel, like go to that dark, dark spot. Um, I just came into that aid station and he, I was behind time, like pretty far from what I should have been. So he knew something was up. So he didn't want my wife and my family to see the dark place I was in at the time. So he met me just outside of their view around the corner. And, um, he just saw, I looked like crud and, um, I just remember looking at him in the eyes and he could tell right away that I wanted to drop and that I just had it, you know, there's not, I was gassed. Um, but he gave me that look right back, like, like you're not stopping. <laughs> and I knew just, we didn't have to say anything. He knew by looking at me that, yeah, I'm going through a rough patch right now. Like, well, he's been to like, that dark place before he has. So he knew in my eyes, he could tell. And then I knew the way that he was looking back at me out there on that trail. I was like, Oh dang, he's not going to let me drop. I was like, he wants me to keep going and he's going to push me. And that's what he did. He just looked at me. He's like, can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something along the lines of like Johnson, just pull yourself together. We're going to go. And he's like, this is what I want you to do. He's like, you're not stopping. Put a smile on for your family. Don't let them see that you're hurting right now. And he's like, I'll grab your headlamp and you just keep walking and you keep going. And he's like, don't even think about dropping. <laughs> and that was it. Savage. And I was like, oh, man, whole another 50 miles feeling like this? 
I was like, gosh, that's going to be a long night. That's going to be horrible. How long did it take you to finish the race? 28 and a half hours. 28? Yeah. And <sighs> yeah, but soon after that, you know, I was like, I was like, okay, you know, change my face, try to put a smile on My wife knew I wasn't feeling good. <laughs> she was a little worried about me, but um, she knew that I was in the hands of, uh, you know, my friend Mark Lance, um, that he's just kind of like a drill sergeant, just like, you know. He's going to make it happen. He's going to watch after me. You know, if I get too bad, you know, he'll make sure that I don't die out there, essentially. But he was going to push me to that point before I die. Um, that but makes me want to go, like, try to find a deep, dark place to sort of re-up my deep, dark place. Because mine <laughs> feels like checkers compared to your game of chess over here. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm just, you know, I'm I'm just nothing over here. But that's, that's <laughs> no. wild because the... Um, the ultra people that I I know of, uh-huh. their like their their dark place is a dark place, and it's not a dark place in a bad way. Yeah, but it's like a a place where they go to to define that mental fortitude. And I have a lot of admiration for people like yourself and people like them because a it's not anything that I've ever had the drive or experience to want to go do yet. Mm-hmm. But the thoughts that are going through your head at that point, it's just not the physical feeling. It's the self-doubt. It's the self-talk. Mm-hmm. It's the, you know, trying to cut out, you know, your body speaking to you. Oh, this hurts. That hurts. You know, we should stop. Getting past that takes a special skill set when you go to that dark place. Mm-hmm. So what are some tips and tricks that you tap into besides just going, oh, I've, I've done worse before to get past that? Yeah. Um, well, that's perfect as you're talking about that you know in that moment where I just wanted to give up but my friend was like you know he didn't have to say anything but I knew like you're gonna do this um you know whether you like it or not (laughs) and so um I kind of learned from that experience that um you know you just gotta flip a switch it's like you know it's hard to really describe like what the there's like the secret sauce is like do this and you'll you'll get past it it's really hard because you kind of have to be there and really like learn yourself. Yeah, it's individual. We all have different motivations and um, different things that keep us going. Um, but what I've learned is you literally have to just flip a switch in your mind and just say, it's like reframing your situation of, okay, this really sucks. But I've been here before. Um, I know I can do it. And it's literally just, you know, it it might sound simple, but it's just like turning your mind, just reframing and just flipping that switch. And one of the, one of the, um, former, um, you know, sponsored athletes that, you know, local in the area, Eric Skadden, um, I used to do a lot of training with him and Mark Lance. Um, there are a lot of, you know, Western States, 100, um, veterans. They've each finished, um, Western States, 100 miles, um, 10 times. And so they've, you know, they've been there. And, um, I remember I, we'd go out there and just pound ourselves to the ground up and down the trails here in Auburn and Forest Hill area, just up and down the canyons, um, for like a whole day, um, on these training runs. And we would beat each other into the ground, um, you know, just pushing each other. And I remember, um, his switch, I could tell when he would flip it into gear because he would always give a grunt. He, he just give a, And then he'd just take off. And like, I could tell that's when he 
flipped his mental mind and flipped the switch. And, um, you know, for me, that's, that's what it is. It's, um, you just figure out what that switch is. And for me, I guess it's just a lot of like reframing of, okay, I'm not giving up and just embracing this really sucks, but I'm just going to go for it. Just going to get it done and and embrace it. You know, it's, it's all about your perspective and how you see these things and just realizing, you know, there's a chance you could die, but it's probably not super high. And you're gonna, I always think about that too, when I'm down in the dumps and it's just hot, I'm thirsty, hungry, like feel like I'm gonna pass out. Like I'm just pushing myself to the limit. It's, um, you know, I just know that I can keep pushing and my body's gonna bounce back. And I just think about, okay, I could stop right now and go sit on my truck or go sit on or lay on the ground by that river or creek over there and I'll start feeling better. But then what am I going to feel about myself afterwards? You know, like I can go, I can go lay down. You're going to start thinking of yourself negatively. Yeah. Or you're not going to be satisfied and happy with where you're at. I share Mm -hmm. some similar sentiment because I, I tapped into a lot of the stuff that Goggins talked about mm-hmm. when I was really um, trying to get some weight off because I had done many things. Uh, I raced go-karts and obviously being a football player and racing go-karts, it's like a football player trying to be a jockey. Uh, it just doesn't make sense, right? You need to be at a certain r- weight to race competitively and I was racing competitively. and So I was like, I had to get to a place where I could, from a diet perspective, from a training perspective, from a losing weight perspective, I could make all this stuff happen. And so I had to go and start doing extreme things. Like I went on a carnivore diet, Mm. right? Then I was Mm -hmm. running like four days a week, you know, three to five miles a day. Yeah. And, you know, I got to the point where I I was, you know, 209 pounds is the lowest I weighed in at, right? You know, right now I'm about 225-ish. So you can start to get that perspective. Yeah. So that diet and like wanting to have something else besides just meat or cheese or an animal product, you know, looking at a donut and like salivating like a dog who hasn't been fed in a couple of days. <laughs> and uh, then also looking at my shoes, like I don't want to put those fucking things on right now. Like I'm, I am a, as Scott says, vanilla gorilla, right? I'm, I'm a thick, large person. <laughs> I am not a runner. I'm not, you know, lanky, um, by any means, I, I'm a dense mass human being. So to do those mm-hmm. things, I remember I would, I would put the headphones in and I would just like listen to the stuff. Don't be a bitch. Lace them up. You know, yeah. so for me, I hear a lot of like what he has done and what you've done. But you you had really pioneered this for yourself just without, you know, his character because he was doing a lot of the same things that you were doing. Yeah, right. Except I'm just listening to you, and you're like, well, you know, I kind of did this one thing, like, uh, we ran across Nevada. <laughs> hey, he yeah. might not even know who Goggins is. I didn't, do you know who David Goggins is? Yeah. Yeah, okay. he was the former Navy SEAL, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a fan? Do you, you know what I mean? Like, uh, do you Yeah. You okay. know, I'm a fan. Um, I have to admit, I haven't really read or learned much about him other than some, like, little video clips. Yeah, I was about to say, he's, like, super rah-rah and cusses a lot, and he's really into, like, the military mm-hmm. training, like, over and over again. So I just feel like you're pretty uh, family-oriented and, and, you know, there's all different types of runners out there. He is very extreme and sort of <laughs> in your face, so I just wanted to make sure that you 
are aware of all these references that Alan's referring yeah. to. And even the dark place. When you described your dark place, you're talking about your son, your mm-hmm. parents. It's like, didn't really sound that dark to me. <laughs> but I hear you flipping that switch. That could be a primal thing or something where you just, like you said, the perspective switches and it's a change. Yeah. No, that's exactly yeah. right. And I think I just used the dark dark place because, you know, that was the uh, sort of molding of my mind that I've had from listening to some Goggins work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just, I, I admire someone like yourself who's able to do those types of activities and tap into whatever that place is. Um, you know, I kind of have a, a, a goal in my life at some point I want to run a marathon. Awesome. And I've enjoyed doing some of those Spartan races, uh-huh. uh, you know, but they're like, what, maybe seven, 10, 12 miles. It's nothing substantial. Right. Uh, but I, still for me, I, I like doing that type of physical activities. I mean, I've ran Ragnar before up mm-hmm. in Tahoe. Um, you know, I, I just haven't done anything that's like ultra uh, distance because I don't think biologically um, it's something I would start at a serious deficit for. Right, because I was probably more like your brothers, who yeah. are a good football player, because I was <laughs> right. a good football player. Yeah, um, not a great runner. Although at some point, you know, I wanted to be a uh, somebody who can, you know, go run a, a marathon and do it well, not having stopped going all the way through. And I want to find out what it's like to. I would probably imagine around mile seventeen, mile eighteen, mm-hmm. tap into that dark place mm-hmm. and get through that dark place. Because that sense of accomplishment, it, it's it's profound, and it's um, it is, it's almost like a shot of whatever your drug of choice is. Yeah, it's like at the end of it, you just right in your veins. And it's, oh yeah, ah, it's such a good feeling. It is. Yeah, yeah. No, you you know that feeling. It's um, it's a it's a great sense of accomplishment. You know, you drag yourself through the mud and the dirt and just totally beat yourself to the pulp, and then you can stand up at the end and be like, wow, that was fun. And it makes life less hard. Mm-hmm. I th- there's a lot of, um, I think, uh, peers that I, I know, uh, peers by age, not peers by maturity, mm-hmm. who uh, they really struggle anytime that life throws them a curveball. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know some people that they just, they've never gone through adversity in their life. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, it's an interview question now that I ask people who want to come and work for us. I ask them to tell me about a time they've gone through significant adversity in their life and how they've overcome it. And if somebody has not gone through adversity or they've been able to tell me how they train for adversity, like for example, Mm -hmm. CrossFit, long distance running, et cetera, cycling, triathlons, that type of stuff. I usually find that they're not going to be able to deal with and handle situations that are high stress and do it calmly. Sure. Look like they've got everything under control, but even though inside their brains, they know they don't have it. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. And, and the people around them have confidence in that they're figuring that out. So I really, really admire that about hearing your story. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I want to continue to tap into the opportunities to train that mm-hmm. because I do have to say I've been behind my twin brother because he he <laughs> definitely tapped into that a little bit more with the wrestling yeah. and with the uh, with the <laughs> CrossFit than I did. Sure. Scott, do you have any questions for Scott before we start? I'm sorry, for Eric, before we start to talk into or or 
dive into some of the health side of what he's doing and what some of his professional career is right now? No, I think we're good right now if we wanted to head towards, yeah, the scholastics as well as like a professional corporate type of vibe. Yeah. But yeah. also, Eric, you chime in right now. You can, you know, sort of pivot however you'd like. Yeah, well, I was just going to... Um, if you have you. any of the belts also, right? Yeah. Alan, Alan's not aware. That yeah, was I was just going to do that. So that's, that's the first 100-mile um, I finished. Um, that was the Western States 100 mile in uh, 2009. Squaw Valley to Auburn. Yeah, yeah, Squaw Valley to Auburn. And so, um, wow. yeah, and you know, you mentioned, um, you know, I'll give it, I need to give a shout out to Cliff Bar. Uh, you know, they were one of my sponsors, and that kind of, you know, brought full circle when I was in high school. Kind of that inner challenge of myself of um, about how, you know, it's like, oh, I can do this, you know, like watch me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, but you know, um, I started doing well and that's just, that's a funny little mailer that Cliff Bar did with some of their sponsored athletes. Did they take care of you pretty good? They did. Yeah. So, um, my sponsorship with uh, Cliff Bar, I had him for about 10 years. Holy and cow. I did yeah. not know that. Jeez. Yeah. Amazing. So I was on, um, the team Cliff Bar and, you know, I first got going, uh, this was before ultra running really took off, mm -hmm. but I was, I believe 24 years old when I did my first ultra race and I did really well. And, um, this is super cool by the way. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and Eric, I didn't mean to interrupt you and yeah. I'm doing it again, but you were just saying in that picture, Cliff Bar was sp sponsoring multiple athletes. Is so there was something that they were doing within that picture? Yeah. So what they would do is uh, Cliff Bar would, um, you know, engage with their athletes, um, you know, regularly, um, do like little promotional things and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I did some podcasts with them. And then this particular year, they wanted to do some uh, Cliff Bar family recipes for the holidays. And so uh, there's a little picture of me with our son on there uh, when I, you know, my wife and I were hiking up in the mountains with them and, but um, gave my favorite little um, um, hot chocolate recipe, um, you know, for the holidays, which is a peppermint <laughs> hot chocolate. But, uh, you know, Cliff Bar took care of me. Uh, you can ask my wife. You know, we had Cliff Bar products out the wazoo um, around our house, which was great because I used um, Cliff Bar products all the time, and I still do. Um, you know, Pan just Pantry's always stocked with the Cliff Bar. Oh yeah, yeah. I would um, commandeer at least two or three cupboards full yeah. of <laughs> my Cliff Bar product. Favorite Cliff Bar? Go. Um, it's the Cool Mint. Oh, the yeah. chocolate. I'm, yeah, I'm the I'm the the chocolate brownie guy. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, that, that one was pretty good for me, too. That one's pretty good. I Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just something about the cool mint. The cool mint. Uh, it, it doesn't, for me, register as, like, I, I never it never gets old is what I'm trying to say. The brownie one, I was mm -hmm. that guy, but something <laughs> dirt biking and all these other things, it's like, man, that cool mint is, like, a treat. It is. It's just refreshing, mm -hmm. you know, especially if it's hot outside. Just kind of get a little mint, a little taste of mint in there. My favorite Cliff uh, Bar product, though, is the uh, Blocks. Yes. When during CrossFit, those yeah. have always been incredibly helpful. Like, let's just say I didn't eat enough for a day or had a really busy day at work. And then just, you know, your nutrition is uh, incredibly important to any of your performance. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I remember there are times I'd get in there and I'd just be dog tired. And you know, take a couple of those things and boom. Oh, yeah. Get some energy pumping. Yeah. Um, yeah. I get some of that great sugar and, you know, electrolytes in there. Um, that's one of my you know, staples I run with is those shot blocks. Yeah. Um, and it's funny over the evolution of, um, I was sponsored by, um, Camelback as well. 
for about 10 years, you know, roughly during the same time. And I did a lot of product testing for Camelback. Um, I got involved with them when early on when they started dabbling into the running area. And so I got connected with them and they were sending me prototypes. And um, I would go, they kind of knew me well as like, I just go beat the snot out of some of this stuff. And I would just, you know, train with it and just see, honestly, I would see how I could break stuff and like see where the weak points are. And then um, I'd send it back to them and I'd, um, you know, I'd point out like, yeah, this stinks, this stinks, this is good. Maybe you should consider something about this part, you know, or that part. Um, and so that was kind of fun um, because, um, you know, when they started making the ultra running vests, um, you know, they'd send me prototypes and there were some real, um, you know, good ones. They start out with mountain biking. So they were really tailored for mountain bikers, but then they started, um, you know, designing them for better fits for running and, uh, you know, more storage, better storage, like where you can, you know, the weight held in better areas, a little bit more balanced, minimizing yeah. chafing. Yeah. And storage right. pockets, they're easy to access for when you're running. Um, and then I'd even give them feedback on like some of their handheld water bottles about where they place the reflective strips on there. Uh, or or not re have reflective strips on there and encourage and say, hey, you should really consider about putting reflective on the bottom here because when you're running, your hands are kind of like going like this and people behind you are going to be seeing the bottoms of them, you know, instead of the sides. Yeah. You know, they'll see the sides, but it's kind of, it was fun. Um, that does sound awesome. Yeah. Shout out to Camelback RIP, my water bottle. <laughs> like I said, <laughs> I'm a vanilla gorilla and I was running. <laughs> and I hit this route, and I fell, and I tell you what, that thing saved me. <laughs> I had it on my hand, everything else, and boom, landed. I mean, it exploded. It all ripped off. My hand wasn't beat up at all, right? I just yeah. I just, just think if that was your hand, the rest of the run. Oh, I think yeah. I probably would have broke a wrist. Yeah, you know, because I my whole weight fell on it. And I mean, I fell on it, compressed it, and like it absorbed it, and then it basically let go. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure I would have broke my wrist. Uh, probably. You know, those those Camelback handheld water bottles have saved me so many times, too. Um, I don't know how many times. Like, you're just booking it, running down the trail, as you can imagine. And you have to learn to pick. Trail running is a lot different than road running. And I, I realize. I prefer it. Yeah, me too. It's um, a little bit more of a, you know, you're engaging all your senses, you know. Um, as far, When I run on the roads, it's almost like, okay, I'm just moving my feet, you know. Yep. relatively safe don't have to really think about too much but man when you're running over roots like rocks drop-offs all kinds of things it's and i like it because i feel as if it uses more of the muscles in your body like a prime example for me is uh uh i used to run cardiac hill a lot yeah and that's actually where that happened when i fell i was running down the backside, so i was running down the roads and I mean, we used to book it like the the lady that i used to train with she does the Spartan races, and I mean, she was like, you know, top two or top three in her uh, mm -hmm. in the open for open or in her age bracket. I don't remember, but she's she's moving. We're doing like a uh, like maybe mid to high six minute pace running down the those roads in the back. So I mean, we're going, mm -hmm. and it was just right around one of those bends, you know, and it's going down. And I mean, I just right on the asphalt. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> and it was like a root had Ouch. came up and I didn't catch it and the asphalt was lifted and 
you know, we had our trail running shoes on, right? So the toes are obviously a little bit more numb because they've got some, some like mine have a little protective something in there. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I eat shit. Hard. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I bet. I know what you mean. I've done it too. One, one time, um, in a lot of the races, you know, obviously I'm not as competitive at the moment. Um, but when I was really competitive, I was doing like low five minute miles, you know, just, I mean, you can just imagine just tearing down a trail, a trail and, you know, going that fast when your toe catches something, you're sprawled out like 10, 20 feet away. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> and you're you tuck just and roll through. and you're rolling once or twice. Yeah. And you know, those, those, those water bottles saved my hands so many times. Like, I just can't even imagine like how gouged up, you know, the palms of my hands would have been. Um, and I don't think, I don't think people appreciate that a lot, you know, um, how fast you're running. Cause when you're running, uh, first of all, a low five minute pace is like insane. That's near top of the top. Mm-hmm. When you're running that fast, how fast on a, like a, let's see here, a mile per hour perspective, you got to be going what? Maybe say, yeah, no, let's see here. Five, right? You're probably going like 11, 12 miles an hour. Probably. That sounds about right. I mean, you're flying. <sighs> yeah. That's fast. That's Down like a mountain. That's <laughs> like most cars. Like, just put it in drive, mm-hmm. let it idle. The car will go about 10, 11 miles an hour. Yeah, that's a ticket for a construction zone, man. You're, you're, you know what I mean? Like, you're, you're moving yeah. too quick. That's true. And then you're 6'5, you're falling, you're heavy. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a, yeah, long distance. Timber. To fall. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's not pretty watching it either when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yeah. And the, the last time I fell um, earlier this year um, up in Auburn in the Confluence, one of the one of the things K2. I like to do is um, stagecoach. Yeah. Um, I like to do the stagecoach hill repeats. Yeah, where you just two run miles back up straight and down up and, and down. back down and up. Yeah, sometimes I'll do seven of those in a row. Um but sometimes people have I just their feel like Wayne's world. We're not worthy. Oh. We're not oh, worthy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this this year, um, you know, sometimes it's you know people walking without their without their dogs. Um, I'm all for people walking their dogs out there. Um, sometimes on those trails, uh, when their dogs are off the leash, you know, it's another component of trying to figure out, okay, where's the dog going? And earlier this year, someone had their dog off a leash and it ran right in front of me. And I totally was trying not to hit the dog and my foot just totally caught a rock and down I went and I could just imagine what that looked like in front of the, the people watching. Right. <laughs> they probably feel dumb too. I, I agree yeah. with you. The other thing too is because I've, I've ran with my dogs and everything else. I prefer mm-hmm. to not take my dogs on trails mm-hmm. just because if they can't be off leash, right, mm-hmm. there's no real point in my opinion because at least the trails that I you're talking about, that's you know they're not dangerous for humans, but you're yeah. there's times when you can't be having a dog yank and pull you, yeah. Right, when you're going up and down that, because I've oh, also yeah. done um, uh, they call it like training hill. Yeah, yeah, you know that's on the other side, mm-hmm. and you can take I forget what the uh, the cutoff is. Up going there. up to Cool Olmstead Loop. Uh, I th- I think that's it. Uh-huh. I think that's it. At, um, but like yeah, I have to be careful because we used to go run in the morning like five thirty six in the morning. And I was like, hey, uh, this is bear territory. Yeah. You know, we, mm-hmm. you've got to be careful of that where we're at. And some friends of ours had seen bears there. And I'm like you. When I am yeah. when I go on a trail run and I'm running, 
I literally thought to myself, okay, so if I see a bear, I cannot run faster and I'm probably going to be a little tapped out because <laughs> I'm going there to get a workout in. Yeah. Um, and the people that I'm training with, they're all faster than me. Uh-oh. I'm, I'm dinner <laughs> so or breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, so I had to be conscious of that because like you said, when you're out there running the trails, all, all your senses, you know, they're going. I've had, I've had deer just doop, yeah. bounce right across in front of us, mm-hmm. you know, to scare the shit out of you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, in my, my days of running, I've seen, you know, well over five, six bears. Um, same with mountain lions. I've seen about five of them just in my time of running. Now, what are the, did you, I'm sure the mountain lion saw you first. Oh yeah. I'm sure there's been a lot more than five, Right. but those are the only five I've caught glimpses of. Now, did they, <laughs> did they, um, like kind of check you out and like, Hey, what are you doing? Or did they avoid you, know, you? Like, what was that like? The times that I've seen them, um, I've caught them kind of come around a turn or something. They hadn't quite noticed I'm there yet. So I've just kind of seen like the tail end of them or like crossing the trail up in front, like real quick. Um, so I've seen them, um, and you know, they usually like to avoid people or not be seen. So that's usually when I've seen them is, you know, thankfully I'm not right next to them. Um, it's kind of been coming on a corner and I just see them real quick, you know, kind of crossing past yeah. or going down the trail or doing something. But I'm sure that there's been a lot more that have seen me and have kind of sat there and checked me out as I've like run by. Well, that's uh, always been like some of my issues running up in the confluence and other areas, like mm-hmm. especially early in the morning. Um, it's like, you know, sometimes you want at least the sort of uh, person of me trying to be thoughtful is like, hey, you know, is it a bad idea to have a gun on me? But it's also unrealistic to run with a gun, right? Mm-hmm. So I run with a little knife, but then it's like, okay. <laughs> So I don't have fangs or claws and I can't move, you know, and have, you know, faster than a snake type of reflexes like cats do. Yeah. Um, But you're so right. I mean, when you're out there, yeah, when you're out there, um, I'm constantly, um, my wife knows this about me. I'm I'm always aware of my surroundings and I'm always just thinking of, okay, what's my escape? Where's my escape route? You know, if this happens, what am I going to do? And it's the same thing with like mountain lions and bears, you know, when I'm out there and even snakes, I've seen lots of rattlesnakes, but it's, um, just being aware of, okay, how am I going to react when I see one or if I see one, and if I have to defend myself, you know, what's going to be my best course of action, but it's just something you have to be aware of, you know, when you're out there and that's, that's kind of adds to the excitement too, of knowing like, Hey, I could be cat food <laughs> out here. <It's, laughs> I better keep running and yeah. I, I better be ready to fight. You know, if something pounces on me. So what's the <laughs> advice that they give to ultra marathoners if they come up on a bear? Um, I think it's just kind of the standard advice. Just get loud, you know, um, just make, get big, get loud, just, uh, make your presence known and kind of stay on your ground of, you know, just, Hey, you know, <laughs> I'm here, go away type of a thing. Um, you know, try not to provoke it. But, um, thankfully I haven't, um, uh, the bears I've seen, um, haven't caused any issues with me. You know, I've just kind of seen them foraging around or this one time I was doing, running a long, um, ascent up, uh, from Eldorado Creek past Michigan bluff up, uh, towards Deadwood cemetery, um, out in the boonies on the Western stage trail and just working my way. Um, you know, there's, you're on the, on the edge of a cliff 
and there's no way to really go up off the trail or go down or else you're going to fall to your probably death um but you know just on this little single path and so there's really nowhere to go other than up the trail or down the trail and i remember this one morning i think i was running by myself um just kind of early just making my way up the trail and i come around the corner and then up in front of me i just see the back of this bear um just his butt in front of me just running up the trail and um like and then it dawned me like holy smokes i don't know how long this bear's been on this trail but i he you know he's been running away from me for a while i'm chasing him <laughs> yeah i was chasing that bear i don't know for how long but i remember just a long stretch I, I was still running and he was still running in front of me. It's kind of like my training buddy out there. <laughs> and, you know, thankfully he was still headed the other way. And once he, we got up to a bigger spot where it's not just drop off, um, he went somewhere. Hey, Eric, I have a quick yeah. question. Um, you're talking about the U.S. trail. What, what, what trail was that? Sorry. Oh, the Western, Western States. States. Okay. And isn't there a Pacific Crest trail? There is. Yeah, is that something that runners ever do? Or is that more of like a survival, like if you can even hike it, you know, you get a metal type of vibe? Yeah, you know, um, I haven't paid too much attention to that. I think there are some people that have run it, um, the Pacific Crest Trail. I usually hear about it with backpackers, kind of like what you're saying. You know, they try to do, you know, from Canada to Mexico or Mexico to Canada. Yeah. Uh, kind of do long backpacking. I'm aware trip. that it, it is so long and everything. It's just, like, to Alan's point, if I'm not a runner, I just don't know <laughs> in this realm, like, what, you know, the extreme guys are doing or ladies. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some guys, um, some people have tried to do records on there, um, and I haven't, I haven't followed it too much, but I know that there are some people that have done some attempts to set records on it with running. Yeah, and it's just generally not something I ever have any interest in wanting to do. But I admire those yes. who who are <laughs> who are wanting to do that because that. What would you call that? Is that like um, like ultra ultra? Uh, you know, I I think it's still just called ultra running. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is ultra ultra. Or yeah. ultra, ultra crazy. Yeah, su- supersonic <laughs> running. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Because the Western States, is that's a huge deal. Oh, it is. You know, that's mm-hmm. um, a 100-mile run. It is. But, you know, uh, from Mexico to Canada. Yeah. Uh, that's a couple thousand On the Pacific miles. Crest. Oh, that's yeah. Like 1,700 That's over 2,000 miles. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's very different. Mm-hmm. I just brought it up, sort of a, you know, rando question. But pivoting back, so you had Cliff Bar and Camelback for 10 years each. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I understood that. Yep. Yeah, and, and they, their sponsorship ranged from you know product um, to money, um, you know financing, um, going to some races, and um, you know being on you know helping with products, being on some of their marketing, and whatnot. So, but it was really fun too. Um, I think some of the most fun I had with it was um, doing uh, product testing. Uh, Cliff Bar would come up with some crazy new, um, crazy new products, and then they'd send, you know, some of us athletes some of it, and it'd be non-labeled stuff, kind of like secret stuff. Um, they'd be like, "Hey, we're working on this new product. Can we send you some stuff and try it out and tell us what you think?" And I was brutally honest with a lot of that stuff, as you like, should be. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like I'm not doing them a favor if I'm not. They're putting their name on you because of your name. Mm-hmm. So why would you do anything less? Yeah, um, I remember on Cliff Bar, um, they might still have them around, but when they were coming out with that, like um, those packets of like mush food, almost, almost like reminded me like com- baby goo food. competitor. Yeah, but they take like sweet potato and like banana and stuff, yeah. like straw, like like mush it all up. So it's like this little pouch. Um, it was literally like baby food, like the Gerber food. 
you know our our son at the time i was thinking like man this is like baby food they could have had that tagline <laughs> for when you're running and you're acting like a baby that's right <laughs> <laughs> that would have been perfect yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. hopefully they're listening maybe they can bring that tagline up <laughs> yeah you heard it first on the whack attack podcast so you're saying that, that testing all the product though that was a passion within itself so running mm-hmm. was the the core but mm-hmm. You doing product development, a little marketing and, and whatnot. It sounds like you you enjoyed that. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was fun. And I also for a for a while I got tapped into Montreal. Um, you know, I those are the shoes that I would run in, um, my races and um so they started sending me uh shoes, new shoes That's that they the were tests that they were working on. And so I'd go beat the heck out of those too. Um and then give them my opinions and send them back. You know, they could analyze them. So what what does it take in your mind to be a good running shoe? Because you're six four, mm-hmm. you know you got you get a decent build and decent size on you for a runner. Mm-hmm. What does the best trail running shoe look like to you? For me, I always wanted um, no frills, just real kind of basic. And I think for foot placement. Um, the thing that I liked about the Montreal shoes was they were pretty thin, um, not a lot of extra on them, and the traction was great. So, you know, traction was a big thing for me um, just because you get going on uh, wet rocks, um, loose stuff, um, and you're also climbing up steep things. And so something that has some really good traction uh, was something I looked for. Um, I didn't want a lot of bulk. So I really wanted kind of minimal. Um, and I think a lot of that's just foot placement, um, you know, and my foot's kind of narrow as it is. Explain foot placement to people who don't run. Foot placement is, you know, like we were talking about, being aware of where the rocks are, um, you know, roots, um, what else, snakes. I mean, other things that you're going to encounter out there. Yeah, because it's, the so it's, it's not a flat surface. It's It's literally running on a trail. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, there could be water grooves from where rain has gone through mm-hmm. or washed through rocks, duh, um, you know, a little bit of gravel, sand, you know, it, many different surfaces. But I just don't think a lot of people they don't who don't trail run, they don't know that it really mm-hmm. matters. Like, for example, the trail shoes I have right now, they make my feet feel the best because I have a very wide foot. Mm-hmm. Right. As you know, in running, there's not a lot of shoes that are really meant for very wide feet. Yeah that usually comes with that bulk that you're talking about. And so foot placement, I really struggle when I go on trails and like I'm trying to run fast because I can't get my foot into where I'm going. And you also got to think about people like, well, how would you not get your foot in there while you're running? So I, you know, a couple miles in, Mm -hmm. right. You're, you're, you're just, you're going, Mm -hmm. you know, your body's saying, okay, I'm, I'm trying to go here. You're not like taking the time to tediously like set down. And if you're going across a little stream, or a little bit of water, or something. You're just like, okay, like this yeah. looks like boom, boom, boom. Yeah, you have to be real nimble. Um, I think is a good way to describe it. And um, when I'm in my fighting weight, you know, I just feel light as a feather, and just real nimble. You have to be real agile <clears throat> because you know you're you're not just running a straight line. You're bouncing all over the place, just putting your feet. And you know, <clears throat> um, something too that I think is different with. Uh, trail running versus road running is just the mental fatigue and your eyes um you know when i do those 100 mile races and i might have been out there for 20 hours i mean you better believe like your head is hurting 
just mentally because you're constantly like, you know, you're activating all your senses and, you know, your smell, your touch, your hearing, um, your sight, um, especially when you're running through the night is, um, you know, you just get so it's exhausting. It is. I mean, you're constant, your mind is constantly processing, not only how your body's doing and making sure everything's firing, but you're scanning and you're looking at every place you're putting your foot. And I mean, you do that over 20 hours, 28 hours. Um, your eyes get really tired of, cause you're constantly just looking all over the place. I, the only experience I have that's mm. even relatable to that is I had to run the seven and a half mile leg at Ragnar at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I just remember trying to go to bed at the end of that. It was um, really a struggle because of exactly what you just mentioned. I only ran seven miles. Mm-hmm. I didn't run a hundred. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And that was brutal because it's like, you're so exhausted. You're exhausted from being exhausted. Yeah. And, yeah, right. <laughs> and it's really hard to just, you know, sort of turn that off. Yeah. You know, and, and sort of dial it down and let it go. And then, you know, you said you added in the intensity of activating all of your senses. Yeah. Um, now let's just shut off all the lights. So when you just got that headlamp on mm-hmm. and you're running, your ears are working overtime mm-hmm. the entire time that you're running. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I was, um, we were on a, God, where were we doing? The Ragnar is normally up in, uh, like near Sugar Bowl, mm-hmm. but we were, we were running up on this ridge and I, I knew we were running uphill, but I didn't know we were running up to a ridge and it was pitch black outside. It was not a full moon. It was like right after, uh, uh, basically not having much moonlight and I'm running up on the ridge and I like, I get to the point where I realize I'm hearing all of these sounds and these echoes and you can't really see too far left and too far <laughs> right. Yeah. And I realize I'm on top of a ridge and it's like <laughs> maybe four or five feet wide. Uh huh. And I'm just sitting here and like it, that sense of danger. Yeah. Hits you. Yeah. And you're like, just keep going. Yeah. Just keep going. Don't trip. Exactly. <laughs> don't trip and don't yeah. fall. And so that, that overwhelming sense. And like I said, I only did it for seven miles. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine doing that on like a Western States or have you done the one that's around Tahoe? Um, I haven't done, excuse me. I haven't done the full one all the way around the lake, um, on trail. Um, the Tahoe rim trail 100 mile I did is, uh, two 50 mile loops along the top of the Nevada side. So like Spooner Lake yeah, and whatnot. So you do a, a 50 mile circuit up there twice. Um, I have run around the lake, uh, once on the highway actually and that was my very first ultra in 2007 in the fall it was 72 miles on the highway all the way around and that was an interesting story but um, cars oh yeah cars um it started at midnight and um it was kind of like self-supported there weren't really official aid stations and um so my wife was up there uh, with her cousin so they were gonna meet me every now and then in the car to give me some like chicken broth or, uh, you know, refill my my cliff, um, you know, drink and water and whatnot. Um, but it was in October and it was unusually cold that day. And around midnight when the race started, it was snowing on us. 
And so um, it snowed for the first three and a half hours. So from like midnight to like 3.30 in the morning. And then the clouds disappeared and the temperature just dropped like to the low 20s or so. And so everything was wet and just froze over. And so here's my wife, you know, with her cousin um, trying to drive our car at that time um, on ice, icy roads. So they're slipping and sliding all over the road, you know, trying to get to the next points or whatever, wait for me. And I just remember in the middle of the night, like 3.30, 4 in the morning, coming down, um, going north towards Incline Village from Spooner Lake, coming down. Um, the road had so much ice on it, I could just, I could get my speed up, run, and then just slide with my running shoes for like 20, 30 feet. <laughs> <laughs> it was the craziest thing. Just like in the pitch black, you know. And that's super dangerous, right? And you're running. You could like yeah. break your brains out. Oh, and let exactly. alone a car could hit the ice and, you know, wipe you out. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that was good times. Did you but, get a um, belt from that? Or you, I'm just saying, did you end up placing in any of these uh, tournaments that, or races that you're referencing? Yeah, so that one was my very first ultra. So I basically went from, um, I had done one marathon um, when I was 18, you know, before that point. So that was like gosh um you know maybe five or six years prior to this so that was the furthest i had ever run was a marathon um and this was kind of a crazy thing like like hey i wonder if i could run um well the year prior to this i had volunteered at western states i didn't even know it existed until 2007 when i went and volunteered at one of the um rocky chucky aid station and um i was like I asked them, I was like, hey, what do I need to do to be able to run this thing? Like, I think that'd be fun to give it a shot. They're like, oh, well, you got to run a 50-miler to qualify and get a qualifying time. So then I was like, hmm, well, I wonder if I could run 50 miles and get the time. So then um, I was looking around, and like two or three months after I found out about that, I was like, oh, there's this race, and they have a 50-mile split that I can use for a qualifier, so let me go try that. So I basically just went from running, you know, half marathon distance at the time to, uh, you know, busting out a 72 mile. But I learned a ton on that race. Um, you know, some mistakes I made. And that's the other thing. It was like, you just learn, um, you know, from your mistakes um, each time you go do something was um, I uh, up until that point, you know, with hydration wise and everything. Um, was just used to taking little sips of water. And so I hadn't really learned, you know, this is kind of like the OG stuff you're talking about. Yeah. I had no idea how to fuel myself <laughs> for a long race and let alone, you know, it was cold outside. So my body was like real deceptive because yeah. I wasn't like sweating bullets. Didn't seem hot, but I was still burning fluids. Yeah. And sips of water is not, that's not <laughs> replenishing what you need to continue, right? Oh, not at all. But I didn't realize that at the time. And so, you know, fast forward, you know, start at midnight and you're kind of going. It's like 20 degrees outside or in the 20s. It's not feeling too bad. You don't really notice you're sweating that much, but you are. And I wasn't replacing my fluids how I should. So then fast forward to, you know, get, you know, 50 miles. I'm starting to ache, get well, like hurt a little bit, um, progress a little bit more. You know, 55 miles is like, oh, man, my ankles and my joints are starting to hurt a little bit more. And then, um, you know, a few more miles by mile 60, I was just like hurting so bad, all my joints and everything. Cramps, does cramps happen? Yep. Yeah, I was starting to get cramps. Um, 
And one of the indicators too, not to be uh, uh, you know too much info, but um, ultra somebody, running, yeah. you gotta you gotta you gotta check you know your urine coming out. Yeah. And you know the color of it, you gotta pay attention to because you can really tell what's happening inside your body. But at that point, um, you know I realized like mm, I hadn't gone to the bathroom for quite a while. So then I made myself, and it was getting darker, and I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> Drank a little bit more water, but it still wasn't enough, and I kept going. I was like, man, I'm hurting so bad. And then, um, you know, went to the bathroom again. It was like almost like Coca-Cola color. Yeah. And I'm like, hmm, that's not good. So then I was like, man, okay, I got like four miles left, and I was in fourth place overall of of all the runners. And so I was like, I was like, man, I just need to squeak it out. I just got to keep going. You know, got to push it. So I did four more miles and got to the finish line. After I crossed the finish line, you know, they usually have some medical person asking you, like, hey, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm really achy. I kind of have cramps. And my urine looks a little bit dark, like Coca-Cola. They're like, oh, well, follow me. So so I they, they had, like, a medical tent set up, and, and I laid in, like, a cot. IV in? Yeah, they put an IV in. And see, I didn't realize how bad off I was until they gave me like two or three bags of saline. <laughs> yeah, for like two, I laid there for like two and a half hours, just just getting fluids in my arm. <laughs> and um, you know, meanwhile, my wife is just kind of sitting there, like wondering, like, okay, what's going on? You know, this is our first rodeo at that point, so it's kind of like, okay, yeah, all right, he's getting the medical attention. Well, he's talking. He's like, he's his eyes are open. He's okay. This is gonna be great. But then after, you know, two and a half, three hours of laying there with fluids coming through pretty soon, working through my kidneys, like, oh, I need to go use the bathroom. So I told the doctor, um, and he's like, all right, um, put your arm around me. I'll help you walk over to the, the bathrooms. So we walk over there, and I'm just kind of limping, you know, just kind of resting on him. And walks me in there. He's like, he's, he literally stands me. I'm, like, so stiff. He, like, stands me in front of the urinal, and he's like, all right, I brought you to this point. Now you have to do the rest. So I was like, okay. So I started going to the bathroom and, um, you know, finished my business. And then all I remember is um, I raised my hand up to flush. And then I just remember telling the doctor, like, I think I'm going to. And then. Passed out. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, the next thing I remember is I woke up and he was dragging me by my pits across the ground, just get through the dirt. Um yelling help help like someone come help me i got a and giant ear. yeah i can barely drag yeah, him. i'm just like <laughs> limp i'm just like i start you know my eyes open up and i'm just like whoa what's going on and then my wife is you know freaking out because she saw you know in in her eyes um she saw the door fling open and then the doctor just grabbing by through the dirt by my armpits like struggling to pull me <laughs> So this is your first ultra marathon experience, and it you, was. and you, and yeah. you continue. Yep, it was. And it's a, it's a testament that your wife is is a true trooper. She yeah. is a trooper because that I I would have called it sort of. Oh yeah, that's, and I even had I even had blood coming down my face. Yeah, because you cause, probably when you passed out. Yeah, when I passed out, apparently I hit my head on the urinal, just mm -hmm. kind of, you know, 
somewhere and sp- it split open like a oh. little goose so, egg. So the doctor walked you to there, said, "Hey, you got to do the rest." So you went pee, and yeah. then all you were trying to do is flush, and that's that was oh, yeah. too much. I totally blacked out. That was too much. <laughs> yeah, we should have yeah. went with the that no flush. If it's yellow, let it mellow. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if it's brown, say nothing. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. <laughs> uh, hey, while that's we're right. while we're you know doing potty talk. Uh, does number two happen while running hundreds of miles and all this crazy lifestyles, or is that does our body just sort of shut that off and you just all run? Oh, there's nothing. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, it, it definitely happens out there. Okay. And uh, you know, just primal state. You yeah. know, you just find a spot, kick open a hole, <laughs> um, do your business, and um, you know, I usually run with the little toilet paper wads that I make in like a little Ziploc bag or something. Okay. Um, so you use that, or there's been plenty of times where I don't have that and you find the biggest leaves you can find. Make sure it's not poison oak. Or pine needles, you know, up or in pine Tahoe. Needles. Those are yeah. yikes. Pay attention to what the leaves look like because um, that's happened before and it doesn't feel very good. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, usually you can scrounge around and find some bigger uh, stuff. Or if you have to, you know, you've always just grabbed a handful of weeds sticking up that aren't thorny and just kind of fold them over and make, you know, make your nature's own little TP. Yeah. Yeah. Nature's hey, TP. you got to do what you got to do. And I respect that because yeah. at the end of the day, nothing is coming in the way of whatever that goal is. Oh, nothing. So I have a guy for you. I want to see if you know, him. do you know a guy named Don Freeman? Name's familiar. I'm trying to remember who it is though. So, he is uh, just a friend of a friend's, and uh-huh. he actually was our uh, uh, team doctor on our football team. Okay. Uh, but he runs a big endurance running podcast, and also uh, he's just been you know in around in my life uh, for a period of time, mm-hmm. and uh, he's just a big ultra marathon runner. And so I wasn't sure if you knew him because he's uh, I think he's he's decently well known in the community yeah, around. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. The name's familiar. Um, and I'm sure I've I'm sure I would recognize him if I see him. The community is pretty tight knit. Um, although I'd say, yeah, you know, I have to say, um, recently I did a five year stint where I didn't do any races just because life got too busy. But you know, I'm working my way back in. I'm I don't have the current physique that I used to, um, but I'm on that journey to get back. Um, so the last five years I've kind of um, fallen out a little bit of following you know ultra running and. I know it's just exploded um, since when I first started. Um, so there are a lot of people out there that um, that are in it that the name's familiar because um, it isn't a huge community. Um, it's getting bigger, but it's still pretty pretty tight knit, especially in the area. Eric, uh, mm-hmm. who did you say earlier? Because I was writing down these names. Uh, Mark Stance is a local guy that you do train with. Mark Lance. Lance. There you yep. go. Yep. Um, and then what was the second person? Eric Skadden. Oh, okay. E R I K um, S K A D E N. All right. Cool. Yeah. So those are the two guys that we just go pound ourselves to pulps uh, yeah. running. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you know what? Uh, I think that that's great because at the end of the day. You have to, have to, have to be ready. Mm-hmm. You can't go do something like this and not be ready. No. And like you said, it's 90% hard work and 10% mental in the training. And then mm-hmm. day of, it's 90% mental, 10% training. It is. And being, can... and being ready for that challenge. Like you said, you know you know it's going to go sideways. And that's almost exciting, it sounds like, to a certain Now, extent. our it buddy is. Aaron, who came on the podcast, he's the taxidermist, big-time hunter. Uh-huh. And uh, one of our friends who's a fire captain, 
bought him a marathon entry for his 50th birthday. Oh, neat. And he said exactly what you just said. He goes, I didn't, I'm not training for the marathon. And he's a CrossFitter, and he's a very good CrossFitter. He's, uh, um, I think he's in his uh, high 40s, low 50s. I don't know his exact age. He looked at me when I said, hey, man, nice work on, on the completing the marathon. I was like, so how'd you train for it? He's like, I didn't. He goes, I just showed up with the attitude that I was going to get it done. Yeah. I got it done. Yeah. And I thought to myself, after listening, you say, I had 90% mental day of. Yep. Right. How bad yeah. do you want it? Right. Yeah. It comes down to the men- mental part of it because no matter what, it's going to suck, you know, and you just have to realize that and embrace it and accept it. It's, it, you know, like I was saying, it's, it's never going to be perfect. There's going to be obstacles, but what's more important is what you do with those. You know, do you let them beat you down and you stay down or do you pick yourself up and dust off and then keep going? Well, hopefully if I have a water bottle in my hand, I, du- I dust myself off and I keep going. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> yeah. So how has this uh, sort of mental fortitude helped you in life, whether that's with uh, your relationship or whether that's dealing with kids or life circumstances as they come at you or in a, from a professional setting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's taught me the value of hard work. Um, you know, you got to, it's taught me there's no shortcuts. Um, and as I get older, that's one of the things I notice kind of in real life. Um, you know, I think we've all had the friends or known people that get wrapped up in trying to do things quick, you know, kind of make a quick buck or, um, you know, sometimes it works out for some people. But the majority of time, um, I see a lot of those things just kind of fall flat um, that doesn't really pan out. And just one of the things that I've realized, you know, it kind of correlates with putting in all the training for doing these long distance races is there's no shortcuts really um, to being successful. The Um, way I've heard it be best sort of resonate with myself mm -hmm. or said in a way that resonates best with me is uh, there's, there's there's no shortcut for hard work. Yeah. It's something you have to go through. And I've realized that in my adult life is um, everybody needs some type of outlet, whether it's Mm self-prescribed or it's sort of put around you from environmental factors or things out of your control. You know, you, you need something that takes you through adversity, that takes you through rock bottom, whether that's to a dark place in your mind on a hundred mile run or whether that's in a dark place in life. Mm-hmm. And going through those tough circumstances, you need those because then everything else that you deal with in life is sort of measured against it mm-hmm. in a way where you're like, oh, that, this isn't that bad. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? Do you know what I had to do running 100 miles? Perspective. In the it gives you perspective. I was just going to say I like that. Yeah, perspective. Definitely gives you a, a great perspective on life um, because, you know, in my career and just like in my, you know, volunteer work and being involved in the community. Um, you know, you just have that perspective of it's not going to be easy, but it'll be, you know, worth it. It's, um, you know, that's where the value comes in is um, you just realize, yeah, there's going to be adversity. There's going to be tough times, challenges, you know, whatever it is. But you just realize that's just a temporary state. And you just, you know, keep your eye forward on your target, your goal. And you just keep working, you know, towards that. 
Okay. So speaking of some temporary states here. Sure. I wanted to ask you a couple of things about your professional background. And yeah. COVID is obviously with us forever, but the response was temporary. Mm-hmm. You currently work in pain medicine at UC Davis, but prior to doing that, mm-hmm. you um, worked at New York City Health, mm-hmm. working on their COVID-19 response. You worked at the uh, Department of Corrections in California, working on their COVID-19 response, and you also worked at the Federal Bureau of Prisons, working mm-hmm. on their COVID-19 response. How was that? in relation to having to deal with something that was just so different from anything else and how did running get you ready for that yeah excellent questions um so that covid response excuse me uh was insane um you know it was um definitely austere environments um It's okay. You can grab your water a bit. <laughs> I get to edit all this out. You know, we get to, okay. you know what I mean? So if we're going to take a drink, we take a drink. It's all good. We'll all do it. Yeah. yeah. We were uh, moving into that <coughs> office next door and I wasn't uh-huh. paying attention. I was moving some stuff and I got some dust on me. So the whole day my nose has been running. So I'm sorry about well, that. Well, no, I'm, I'm actually hoping my, my <laughs> nose doesn't bleed because my wife and I, um, I just had my 40th birthday a week and a half ago. Happy and birthday. So, Happy thanks. late birthday. Yeah. <coughs> I'm over the hill officially. No, you're not. You're running the hills, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you're all per- down it's all hill. perspective. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. it's all perspective, you know. That's true. Yeah, I guess. But what you're saying, you, you guys picked each other's nose for fun. Bad joke. Sorry. <laughs> but how'd you get a bloody one? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't, you know. Yeah. I, I didn't know where we were going with that. Yeah. No, that's exactly where I was going. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, one of my favorite places to backpack is the Lost Coast. Oh, okay. And um, tell me where that's at again. So it's just up. Northern California on the coast, just below Eureka. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, um, you know, we took four days backpacking all night, just my wife and I. For and your 40th? Yeah. Dude, y- y- your initials should be REI, dude. You're so, <laughs> <laughs> you're so. Okay, oh, continue, continue. I love, I love the outdoors. All right. That's, that's my happy Husband, place. Husband, wife, 40th, uh, you know, birthday. Oh, hold, hold on, Scott. Let's, hike. Let's, let's get back to him answering the question. That way there's not this, this big old gap. So the question was. <laughs> so I can, I can get you, re- sure. you know, re- reformatted here. Yeah. So how does all the training with running get you into and get you prepared to deal with the COVID-19 response that you did for New York City Health, for uh, California Department of Corrections, and then also the Federal Bureau of Prisons? So um, I think the mental toughness and fortitude to be able to push through exhaustion, I think, really helped. And also your your sense of awareness. Um, with uh, when I went and did the COVID response, um, it was first in the, the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, I was in charge of setting up and running a COVID acute care facility. You know, twenty four seven. You know, healthcare within a prison. And so I was the main one in charge of running the operations of it. So I had um, a lot of clinicians that we flown in from around the country and so I was it was my responsibility to you know set it up and make it run and you know take care of any issues that came up and so um you know we had uh two shifts um 12 hour shifts seven in the morning to seven at night and then seven at night to seven in the morning so um and in my job description you know the contract I took was um literally I'm 24 7 
So, um, as you can imagine, there was stuff happening all the time, man, it was exhausting, you know, tiring work and especially building the healthcare facility within the prison, we were given a blank slate. And so we had to, uh, decide what we needed to, um, outfit the, the facility there. Um, and we had 21 beds in the first, the federal bureau of prisons, that prison site, uh, we had 21 hospital beds. So we had to get all those beds in there. Um, you know, th- we were able to have the prison facility crew with us. Um, if we said, hey, we need to build a shower in here, they'd help us build a shower, you know, kind of like take care of construction type stuff. But then we were also outfitting it with medical supplies, uh, medical equipment, and um, training on that, you know, making sure that we got it all going. So you were a glorified project and people manager. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what saying. Yeah. So... Um, but busy nonstop, um, you know, we were running that 24 seven. And, um, so just the mental, um, fortitude to just keep going. I mean, we were making, you know, essentially life or death situations in some circumstances and just fatigued. Um, and so just really being able, just drawing on that experience of being there before of just being so mentally exhausted, you feel like you could fall asleep while you're walking. Um, just being able to um, keep going and be able to kind of flip that switch, you know, um, take it from, man, I'm exhausted to just being able to flip the switch in your mind, like kind of renew yourself, like, okay, um, acknowledge it, you know, acknowledge I'm exhausted, I'm beat, but there's a lot of people relying on me. I need to get it together and stay sharp and do what needs to be done. So I think in that sense, it helped me a lot. And then just the stamina of, uh, you know, continuing that because I was doing that 24 seven for a long while. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. how'd you get into that? Because you were a financial analyst prior to doing that. Obviously, you were a financial analyst in healthcare, Adventist Health, Sutter Health. I assume you probably got your start in there for Ernst & Young. Uh Um, So how'd you make that transition? So um, I decided um, to move out of the finance space. Um, I came to my senses and realized I didn't want to become a CPA, um, a partner <laughs> for my life. <laughs> um, I have nothing against CPAs. It's great. We need them all. Um, but I just didn't see myself long term going that route. Um, and honestly, like inside, that wasn't personally gratifying for me because I've always been service oriented. Um, I get a lot of joy out of helping people, you know, serving others, which I think is naturally comes with healthcare. You know, you're serving the community, helping people feel better. Um, it feels great to know that you're helping someone that isn't feeling great to feel better, to be, you know, and so I really wanted to, I was intentional about transitioning out of finance because, um, I'm also, um, a little more extroverted. I like engaging with people, being involved in things. And um, I just felt like in finance, it was a little more, you know, it tends to be a little more introverted, um, kind of behind the scenes type stuff. But I really like getting involved in everything, kind of variety of stuff. And um, so just kind of had this epiphany of, man, I really think I want to get into hospital, you know, operations, administration, and kind of move out of the finance. So worked with a mentor um, that was uh, Van Johnson. Um, he was the Sutter CEO for quite a while, no relation. Um, but you know, uh, I originally knew him from, um, his daughter, uh, his youngest daughter. Butterfields, that, right? Um, no. Um, well, 
let's see. So his daughter was Rochelle um, Johnson. Yeah, I knew, I knew, his, I knew his grands, I knew his grandsons. Spencer oh, okay. Butterfield was a star basketball player in the Loomis, like third ward. Anyways, oh, I yeah, just remember yeah. I went to the Johnson you're referencing. Yeah, I went to their house uh, in Loomis, you know, and I don't okay. know Grandpa Johnson, but I think that's who you're talking yep, about. Yep, that's him. Okay. Yeah, so he was so Van Johnson was my. I was fortunate to have him as a mentor. You know, he had since retired from Sutter Health, but just talking with him, kind of my interest, what I wanted to do. He really encouraged me to get my Master's of Health Administration because I had done my bachelor's uh, in accounting at Sac State. And so that was my next step is um, I, you know, he helped me whittle down a, a short list of great MHA programs throughout the country. And so I started applying to some and um, I decided to go to George Washington University back in Washington, DC. So I got into that program. That was a straight two years. Um, one of my classmates that I really clicked with he was a former uh, PJ um, in special forces, you know, over in Iraq and Afghanistan. And yeah, PJ, explain that for people. So they're the ones that um, ride in the helicopters. You know, they're medically trained. Um, they carry the, the machine guns. They they get dropped behind enemy lines and go rescue soldiers <laughs> that are wounded. You know, behind the scenes. And so that's what he did. Jumped out a lot of planes, helicopters. Perfectly good planes, by the way. Yes, exactly. So they're the ones jumping out behind enemy lines, uh, rescuing people um, and bringing them back to safety. And so that's what he did uh, for his military career. But I got hooked up with him in our master's program. And uh, him and I just had real similar personalities. We worked really well together. We were just like, like let's bust this you know, project out. Let's get it done. And um, just really on the same page, um, a lot of similarities. And um, so did the two-year program with him, uh, you know, got my MHA degree, kind of continued in finance uh, for a little while, trying to make that transition. And, and then COVID happened and he, you know, had since got into government contracting with tactical medicine. And so him and um, another person he knows that's, uh, you know, retired CIA were doing some contract work for the government. And he, out of the blue, just kind of called up and said, He's like, hey, I just won this big contract for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. We need to uh, create a hospital inside this prison. He's like, um, you know, I need someone to help run it. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm currently working at Adventist Health <laughs> in finance. Um, tell me more about this. And so he told me, you know, it'd be strictly operations. And it sounded exciting, you know, an austere environment. Um, when he was describing what it was going to be like, he really didn't know what it was going to be like exactly. Uh, and I think this is kind of where the running comes into play. Like He said, just, we're going on an adventure, and I kind of think this is how it's going to be. And you're thinking, yeah, I've been on adventures before. Exactly. So it sounded kind of exciting. It's like, wow, inside a prison with convicted, you know, you name it, <laughs> people right. all around you. Um, but, you know, it was it was a, it was a challenge. It, was, it sounded exciting. So... And he's a friend you trust, right? It's not like you're yeah. like worried about his character. Right. Yeah. Someone, yeah, I had known him for, you know, several years at that point and trusted him. So, so anyways, um, I said, you know what? And I was looking for, I was honestly having a little bit of challenge pivoting out of finance because when I'd go interview or talk to people, they'd, they'd be like, peg me as a experience. finance guy. Yeah. And so that was becoming a little bit of a challenge. And so it was a good opportunity 
to kind of jump, you know, just full force into operations. So I said, you know what, let's go do it. And so I ended up going down to, um, it was a Lompoc Federal Penitentiary in Southern California that we went to first. And uh, we got that stood up and running. And um, it was a great experience. You know, it was intense, like really intense, real stressful. And, uh, you know, not only for me and, and him, but also the rest of the team that were working down there. Um, but, you know, we figured out there wasn't really a playbook at all for how to combat a pandemic inside a prison. Um, you know, because as we all know, there hadn't been anything like that, um, you know, in modern history. <laughs> so, so we kind of wrote the playbook. We, we got a, uh, we dialed in a really good model for how to fight COVID within a prison system. And then that's, you know, what, after a couple of months of that, that's what brought in the state of California, um, out of the blue, the governor's office, uh, contacted us and said, Hey, um, we've heard about what you guys are doing down there at that prison. We're having a huge issue at San Quentin. Um, do you think you guys can come and meet with us and kind of talk with us about what you're doing and we can share with you what we're doing? Um, you know, they weren't having great success. I think at that point they had already had like 18 deaths for inmates and whatnot. So the governor was just had a huge black eye, just, you know, just public publicity nightmare going on. Um, they just didn't have a good handle on it. So we're like, yep, we'll show up tomorrow morning. We'll meet with you guys. So we drove up to San Quentin and, you know, put a suit and tie on, met with the warden met with like five other government agencies. We just had everybody in the room, learned what they were all doing. And it was one of those things where um, it seemed like they just, you know, you had five different agencies just having a hard time working together. And it's like, oh, I have this idea, let's do this. You know, competing ideas and really trying to get them all on the same page. I think that what we were able to do is just come in there since we already had a couple months experience of, you know, figuring out a model that worked well. We're able to share with them what um, we what we had learned and what we had set up. So we were able to come into San Quentin and just be like, you know, kind of listen to what they were saying, what they had tried, what they were doing. And the warden walked us around, you know, took us through death row. And since we had suit and ties on, they all yelled at us and threatened our lives, literally. <laughs> um, and um, got, a, got a good concept of what they were trying and what wasn't working. And then we were able to point out, okay, we don't recommend you do that anymore. We recommend you do this, add this, do this, don't do that. And really, um, you know, uh, just were able to outline something that would work for them. And um, they said, great, when are you guys gonna, when, when can you guys start? So within that next week, you know, I, um, I left that other prison we were at handed it off to someone else to keep running and then I went up there and got um, San Quentin up and running you know with a, a hospital facility inside the the prison walls so Eric tell me about your mm -hmm. hospital administration experience now well I've set up a hospital in three different prisons <laughs> yeah uh, you know uh, personally saved the uh, Federal Bureau of Prisons uh, <laughs> from from being a poster child of what not to do <laughs> right. and then was brought in to fix somebody else's nonsense right yeah Oh, and did I mention I, I I did this in an environment full of uh, uh, dangerous and violent criminals? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like okay, yeah. yeah. So you're Wasn't hired. too bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how you got your current gig of where you're at, correct? Yeah, yeah. So so did the prisons. Um, 
and then you know went over and uh, with a second wave of covid when found myself in new york city um, with new york health and hospital um you know they were doing a program of isolation hotels so it was people that weren't as sick as what we were taking care of in the prison um, where they didn't need to be hospitalized like with you know they weren't in intensive care or anything just minor covid positive with minor medical um needed a minor medical intervention at that point um so helped with that for about five months um in manhattan my facility was an uh was a hotel abandoned hotel uh near times square that we took over and we had about um you know 300 beds in there that were that we kept full i mean there's a huge need for it so ran that 24 7 and then um after that it's like okay this is this is great you know great experience but really need to get home and this is the middle of 2021 um so that kind of wound down in that june and then came home um you know unfortunately it was really rough you know my wife and son didn't see them for a while and so that was that was a rough time for us you know it was rough for a lot of people but so grateful to be home and um, decided, okay, I need to really find something here. Because um, by that point, uh, you know, the ironic thing with the whole pandemic is financially, a lot of these healthcare systems had to let go employees. They had to cut costs. And as you know, the biggest expense for any company is payroll. And so that's what a lot of healthcare companies were doing is they were just had to lay people off. And so that's what happened with my job at Adventist since I had this other thing going. So came home with no job, you know, um, and started interviewing around and, you know, UC Davis was hiring. So just threw my, my hat in the, in the ring there. And, um, Here you are. Yeah. So yeah, I got hired on as the division practice manager for pain medicine at UC Davis health here in Sacramento. And I'm just ecstatic um, about it. It's been a, a great experience. I've uh, been there since December of 2021, been able to incorporate a lot of changes, um, and uh, it's a growing service, as you know. This, there's a um, opioid epidemic out there in society. One of and our clients at Three Ventures, um, they run a very large uh, nonprofit that provides uh, services and information to families or people who have addictions. And we get to get a link for the opioid uh, or the opioid awareness week on the homepage of Google. So I'm intimately familiar and aware with that. Oh, that's great. Or, or of that, I should say. Yeah. So yeah, very, very much so needing some creative solutions. And I, and I bet you'd be able to bring some of the background and experience that you have with other healthy habits that you've brought into your life as maybe uh, a thread that you get a stitch into some of those policies and decisions. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, just I think relying on the pharmaceuticals and having their interest be so tied to what it is that they push, you know, it's maybe got to have a, a thread of, uh, overall like physical wellness and environmental wellness, um, into that. I could imagine. Mm -hmm. Right. So it seems like it'd be a very good fit for you. Yeah, no, it's been great. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's definitely a growing sector. So just helping navigate, um, the growth of it and, um, also moving in, we're fortunate to have a new space that we were able to move our clinic into. Um, so just, I guess, kind of my, my, um, you know, trial by fire, kind of setting up operations and whatnot. Um, you know, some of that experience has been great 
for helping us move into the new space and, and so forth. And one of the things that really sets us apart to our group down there is, um, <clears throat> you know, out there, as you know, a lot of pain is treated by just, you know, let's throw some pills and medicine at it. We don't prescribe anything um, in our um, pain medicine division like that in that way. So it's all interventional stuff that where we really do a lot of uh, procedures to address what's causing the pain um, by nerve ablations, um, spinal cord stimulators, and just a lot of interventional therapies to get people off of medications. That is so, so. awesome. I think this is probably a good place to wrap it up. I would love to, if you ever have some time in the future, have you come back on and we could touch on what mm -hmm. you're doing at UC Davis, specifically mm -hmm. with their pain management practice. I'd like to talk about that in depth yeah. because there's a couple topics that we talk about here. Uh, obviously, uh, technology, finance, uh, uh, health and fitness, right? Uh, and then there's, uh, a there's a couple other ones, but those are generally the main ones. We've really sort of hit on the health and fitness. Mm-hmm. And I really think the health side of that, we can go into a little bit deeper with the pain management because we do have a lot of people who listen, who are uh, very active, uh, who are very involved in sort of non-traditional sports, whether that's CrossFit or, or, or powerlifting or, mm -hmm. you know, doing what you're doing or uh, um, well, like long distance ma uh, bike racing, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It would be really good to talk about some of those pain practices because there's so many people out there who are in that same boat, like, hey, I just, I don't want to take a pill. A pill's not going to yeah. solve the problem. Root cause analysis. Yes. Let's get to that. I feel like that would be a wonderful topic to have you back on in a future date with. Oh, I'd love to do you that. so, please. Yeah. But it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for bringing in all these awesome photos uh, and everything else. I think we're definitely going to want to get some pictures of these so we can get it added in uh, to the show here because uh, these are great, you know. Yeah. And uh, in case folks can't see it, 22 hours, 20 minutes, and 43 seconds. Yeah, that was my first 100. Mm -hmm. and That's my impressive. And then my fastest one was, I can't remember the exact time, but it was 20 hours and 40 minutes. That's for more impressive. In 2011, yeah. <laughs> the same race, so I improved by about two hours or so. That is so awesome. Yeah. All right, more to come on that at a future date. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. My pleasure, thanks. Thank you.